the best care from a doctor's perspective and in my industry the best lawyering happens when there is like a really basic level dialogue so nothing should be so complicated that the patient or the client doesn't understand it and there can be really complex things going on in your body but it needs to be explained in a way that you really get it Welcome to Speak Up For Your Health. I'm your host, Dr. Arkel Giorgio. In this podcast, I have conversations with real patients about how they found their voice, figured out how to advocate for themselves, and finally got the medical care they needed. What's more important than that? Now, you may not have the same health conditions as the guests on the show, but you may have the same frustration with your doctor, your health insurance company, or some other part of the healthcare system. The stories you'll hear are real and relatable, and most importantly, give you the courage to speak up the next time you're getting care. Today's guest is a young woman named Ariel. When Ariel was in her early 20s, she halted a medical procedure just seconds before it was happening because she realized the doctor had made a big mistake. Enjoy the show. So Ariel, I'm just going to introduce you a little bit. You're 33, you're an attorney, you live with your husband and daughter in Brooklyn, New York, and you also happen to be my daughter. But the reason that I ask you to be my guest on this podcast isn't because you're my daughter. It is because you have such an extraordinary story that's pretty funny about speaking up for your own health when you were in the OBGYN's office. And I really thought it would be a great way to start this podcast. And you lighten me up a little bit. So I thought that you would be a great first guest to have. So thanks. Oh, likewise. Thanks for having me. Yep. So before we jump into the details of that event, and you know which event we're going to talk about, let's go back and set the stage for sort of where you were in your life. And I think you were in college and you were figuring out what to do about birth control. So let's start there. Starting this off with a bang, get right into my exploration of birth control. That's right. So to take things back even further, I was thinking about this story and about how So I come from a medical family. You are a doctor. My dad is also a doctor. My uncle is a doctor. There's just a lot of medicine in the family. And so conversations about medication, conversations, even birth control, were not really taboo in our house. And so for my whole life, I felt like if I wanted to ask about birth control pills, you would be honest with me. But that also means that I heard your, what I thought were very valid critiques of things like the birth control pill, kind of what it can be prescribed for, say like acne in someone who's not sexually active and what it can do to emotions. And so even before I was at a point where I was looking into my own birth control options, I felt that I was already a little bit skeptical of hormonal birth control for two reasons. One is that I had heard you speak about the amount that it can really affect your emotions and your mood. I also know that my grandmother on your side is really sensitive to medication. I think you're pretty sensitive to medication. I can be somewhat sensitive to medication. So I always looked at, you know, that particular option, which happens to be, I think the most common option, hormonal birth control pills with a degree of skepticism. 
so when I was in college and I felt like everyone you know just has the little package of pills in their purse and they're always kvetching about how they forgot to take it, they're like popping them out like Tic Tacs. Um, <laughs> not to say it's irresponsible, but I won. I saw how much, like, when did everyone get on the pill? I'm not on the pill. Two, I felt like the way it was being taken, I saw how much human error can be in the birth control pill because I'm always seeing my friends talk about forgetting to take it. And human error can have some consequences. Oh, 100%. 100%. Yeah. I also went on Accutane when I was in late college. And on Accutane, you have to be on birth control. So I was looking into different options and I decided on getting an IUD. Let's stop there for a second. And I want to just understand what you may have been thinking at the time. So I know that I'm very opinionated and I had my opinion about oral contraceptive pills and any hormonal type of contraception. You know, just to state for people that may not be familiar, hormonal contraception doesn't just come in the form of pills. It also comes in the form of IUDs that are impregnated with hormones and your body can still absorb those hormones. So hormonal contraception isn't just the pill. It can come in other forms as well. So I'm just wondering, did you ever think about, well, maybe the pill isn't right for my mom, but the pill is right for me. I, definitely. I think I was on birth control pills for a very short amount of time, maybe two months, maybe six months. But I remember I'm a bit of a crier in general. And so if I see like a really cute Google commercial about like an elderly grandparent that's exercising so they can lift up their grandkid, I'm I'm weeping. Right. But I remember being on birth control and weeping way more. And it was this it was the kind where you hear it's like, I don't know, I'm crying. Like it was it was uncontrollable. And I remember that was a while, and it was a short stint that I was on hormonal birth control. Then I went off of it for a while for a couple different reasons. So then when I was in this point where I was really looking that I was describing before, I had remembered how affected I was. So I wasn't just thinking about your experience and, you know, what you had described to me. I had felt it. And for the record, because I like to stay really science-based, Birth control pills can certainly affect women's moods when they take them. Not everyone. Many people tolerate them well. And studies are actually a little bit mixed on whether or not it, it really makes depression worse. That being said, women who have experienced a mood change on birth control pills, it's real for them. They do not like it and they don't want to be on it. Okay, so that's just for the record what the science is. So you decide you want an IUD. And at that point, what did you do? What was your process? I had already been living in New York for a few years. And so I had found a gynecologist that I liked. And it was pretty easy, I remember, to make the appointment. I, I Again, I grew up with Dr. Parents. So I called and I said, I don't want two appointments. I don't want a consultation and then a follow-up where you give me an IUD. I want the IUD the day I come in. I've been your patient for a while. So we scheduled it and I, and I had options because like you said, no pun intended, some are impregnated, haha, with hormones. I, I didn't want the hormonal IUD for two reasons. One is that I knew it had the hormones in it. And that was, even though it was a way less amount of hormone than like an oral contraceptive pill, I didn't want that at all in my body. 
The other thing was that when I looked at what these IUDs looked like, it looked to me like the ones that had the hormones were made of plastic or what looked to me like plastic and had to be replaced every couple of years. And the one that I was interested in was made of copper and it might've been a little bigger, but these things didn't look that big to me anyway, but it could stay in for 10 years. And so I, I felt like when I looked at what the integrity of the structure looked like, I was nervous about putting something like that plastic in my body. Something just felt wrong to me about it. And did you do any research about it or was it just your gut? Was it your gut? Um, you know, forgive me, you're starting your first podcast. I'm telling everybody what kind of birth control you used, but I <laughs> know that, and you can edit that out if you'd like, but I had probably the best medical researcher I'd ever met also happened to be my mom, also happened to have that IUD, but it was older too. Like that IUD had been around for a while that I felt like the kinks had probably been worked out in certain ways. Whereas I don't remember how long it was the ones that had hormones. I'm not going to name the company that makes them, but they were newer when I was younger that it felt to me like sort of like when a new iPhone comes out and you wait a couple weeks so that they can work out some of the technical difficulties. I knew that the copper IUD had been around for such a long time and could stay in someone's body for such a long time that I felt like I trusted. So yes. So in terms of did I do any research, I did enough research that I felt like it seemed like a more comfortable option in terms of what could go wrong here. Okay. So let's jump to that visit. You already advocated for yourself because you said, I don't want two visits. I want one. Great. <laughs> there are often times when doctors for billing purposes will ask you to come in twice. You knew better than that. You knew what you wanted. You go to the office. What happens there? Tell me about the interaction with the OBGYN. Yeah, it's it, so I love this OBGYN. It was lovely. They put me in a cute little pink gown. They put me on the table. It was this big room. I sat in the chair and I'm a little goofy by nature. So I like scooted down in the chair and put my little feet in the stirrups and they kept calling me hun and they go, okay, hun. And they came in and they were taking the IUD out of the box. And again, my feet are in the stirrups, but kind of ready to go. And I look. Pause before you get to this moment. Did you, Yes. what did you tell the office when you called to make the appointment about what IUD you wanted? Oh yeah. I told them that I wanted the copper IUD and they had a bunch of them at the office, right? So it wasn't like they needed to order it for me. They already had it. And so conceivably they have several just kind of in the box ready to go. Um, but they said, we have that in stock feel free to come in. We'll put it in at your next appointment. I didn't even have to wait that long. I think it was like a week or so. And then I went into the office to have it put in. They described to me, you know, what it was, how long it could stay in. But when I looked out of the corner of my eye, I noticed the writing on the box and the picture on the box were different than the brand that I wanted. So I wanted a copper IUD, which was called the Paragard IUD. And I saw a box that had a picture of, I 
thought it had a picture, but maybe it said the word Morena, which was the hormonal IUD. And I remember my feet were up. And I was like, no, no, <laughs> that's not the way I want. And they, it was out. Like the gloves were on for the nurse. And they sort of looked down and I told them again. And I remember like the alarm on their part wasn't much. For me, I thought I could have this thing in my body for 10 years. The Mirena is only supposed to be in your body between like, I think it's one and three, definitely less than 10. And so they said, oh, oops, sorry. And then they went and they got the one that I wanted that I've had until I had my daughter about a year and a half ago. Um, well, and then I was pregnant nine months before that. So I had it for a really long time, but it's possible that I would have had a plastic IUD in me impregnated with hormones needs to be taken out between one to three years later because I didn't see the box. I would have assumed it was the copper one. I might've just kept it in my body for 10 years, which isn't good and isn't how it's supposed to be used. So I was already nervous to have that done. I had never had something like that done before, but then I was totally, I laughed it off because I use humor as a bit of a crutch, but um, a I had the heebie-jeebies of what could have happened had I not been paying attention. So I love, you know, that story when I heard it as your mom, I just thought it was extraordinary. When I hear it again, it still strikes me the same way. So let's go back. I want to get a little further into you're on the table, yep. you're in the stirrups and that cute little blanket, and you notice that something would be inserted in you that was the wrong thing. And yes. I can tell you, having been a doctor for many years, that there are many, many people who would have, A, either not noticed, or B, made an assumption that even though it didn't look right, the doctor's probably right and not spoken up. So can you go back a little bit and tell me how you got the courage to speak up and jump out of those stirrups? I wish I had a better answer because your question almost assumes that I would be nervous to do so. One benefit that I probably had, this is not fair, but it, it wasn't the doctor holding the box. It was a nurse. So I feel like there's already like a deference that people have to doctors that I probably just naturally didn't have as much of with a nurse. I think that like IUDs are, a it's a big conversation that I was pretty familiar with because I'd heard you describe what they do and how they work so many times. And I felt like it was a conversation that I was really, like I really understood it that I felt like of all the topics, that was one that I didn't have any hesitation because I felt like I really knew what I wanted and I really knew what I didn't want. And I knew enough about both of the options that it wasn't hard to be like, that's wrong. This is right. You know what I mean? And there's a consumer aspect to these products of that's what I want. If it was like, um, a psychiatrist offering different kinds of anxiety or depression medication, I feel like I would probably be a little bit more apprehensive and not really know and just give some deference to the doctor because it's a little mushier in terms of how much you can understand about the differences of the products. But this, I think, was 
this was a pretty easy moment to do so from an advocacy perspective. So as you know, I wrote this book called Five Steps to Getting the Medical Care You Want and Need. Healthcare Choices is the primary title. And in it, there's a five-step model called the CARES model. Know your condition, understand your alternatives, respect your preferences, evaluate your options, and start taking action. And when I talk about that model with audiences, one of the areas of pushback I get so often is that people say, but, but I'm not a doctor. I don't understand the alternatives. I get it. And you just described a situation where you might not understand the alternatives with psychiatric medications. But you weren't a doctor and you understood the differences between different types of IUD. So here's my question to you. Do you think that it's reasonable to suggest that people do, at, um, at a layperson level, understand the different alternatives do they have? Or um, do you think it's, it's unreasonable for me to suggest that to people? You did it. Uh, I don't know if you've done it since then or if, you know, an IUD was in a special category and you you felt like you understood it once. What do you think? Okay. So I think that the best care from a doctor's perspective and in my industry, the best lawyering happens when there is like a really basic level dialogue. So nothing should be so complicated that the patient or the client doesn't understand it. And there can be really complex things going on in your body, but it needs to be explained in a way that you really get it. And if the patient doesn't understand that and they just say, I don't know, they're a doctor. I don't think this is going to be a bold statement, but I don't think that's great care. And then I think patients should also be involved in their own care in the sense that they should be asking those questions, right? You shouldn't be complacent and just sort of think everything's going to be okay if a doctor prescribes it to you. So saying things like, you know, I'm really sensitive to medication. How do you think that's going to play into these two options? Or what's the worst case scenario of this happening? Or coming in, having like browsed the web and saying, I've seen these things. Is that related here or is that totally off base? I think that you should be able to sort of spitball with your doctor and like they're busy and you know they're busy because they sort of come in with the clipboard and they sort of always look like they want to leave when they're talking to you. But I remember at all of my pregnancy appointments, I would just talk to them as much as they would talk to me and they would stay and they never said, you know what, you've run out of time. So even if you feel like you're burdening them, they're like, they're, you're there for the appointment and they have to talk to you. So you were saying, what do I think? Should people do that? I absolutely think that the patient should do that and the doctor should explain. And then between the two of them approaching their care, you know, equally from both sides, you'll probably get a good answer. But when you get someone who's way too deferential to a doctor and not really saying anything about their preferences, their conditions, or if you get a doctor that's just way too heavy handed and not listening, you know, if you get one person that's a little too much or a little too meek in either direction, that's where I think you get, you know, overlooking of problems. That's a really good point that you brought up that the patient has to take the initiative in addition to the doctor taking the time, but the patient has to take the initiative and be bold and courageous to keep asking questions just like you did for your prenatal visits. And I'll tell you that studies show 
that doctors respect and pay more attention to patients who are asking smart questions and engaged in their care. Um, of course, there's going to be doctors who, you know, do mind. But in general, the studies show that if you are engaged, you ask questions, doctors will make the time or as much time as they have to try to address that. And if I could just add one thing, I think also, and this goes again for any industry, I think part of doing your research is weeding out the questions that you can easily answer via the internet and like credible sources, right? Obviously, when I say the internet, I mean, you know, credible sources, but I think you should approach the doctor's office with the things you can't necessarily answer online. Like, it sounds like people have really varied reactions to this. What have you seen? Like, I think these things that you can easily have answered on the web are the things that your doctor is going to feel like they're, you know, it's a waste of their time. But if you have the tough questions to really weed out the easy answers and ask the doctor the tough questions, because you really, I mean, you do have limited time, but I'm not saying go in from a place of ignorance and just expect them to give you all this information that you probably should have obtained yourself. I always recommend that people go in with three to five really good questions after having done some research on their own on the internet. And I also recommend people always ask me, what do you think of Dr. Google? Um, I love doing medical research on the internet, but I don't start with just asking Google. I go to an evidence-based site. I use mayoclinic.com. I use clevelandclinic.com, WebMD. They're all excellent, but I go to a site that's credible and ask the site my questions and try to do my research from there. So that's really great that you did that. Tell me about how maybe that experience and other experiences have influenced how you've approached your care since then. And now you have a daughter and you may care even more about her health than your own sometimes because that's what moms do. How has this influenced how you approach medical decisions for yourself and for her? And do you do your research before you go in now? Oh, 100% do my research. It's funny. I have this story that's sort of on the tip of my tongue that I think about. There was an instance where I feel like I probably could have asked more questions, but instead I was so staunchly set in my own preferences that looking back, I thought maybe I could have, I could have had a little bit more nuance to how I feel about this. And I'm about to tell you what that is. When my daughter was born, I was really set on not having a C-section. I had ideas about C-section births and this is going to sound terrible now, but sometimes I assumed that like women that didn't want to be in labor too long would have a C-section just out of kind of convenience for their schedule. Um, I also had heard some misguided things about C-sections prevented you from having a stretched out vagina um, that it's, and you're smiling because I thought it was crazy, but I didn't want to be one of those women that had a C-section so that I had like, I'm not stretched out vagina. I cannot believe this is going to be on a podcast. So because, <laughs> and I felt the recovery from what I had heard was, was way easier when you had a non-C-section delivery. Also, um, my family has scared me about all the risks involved in surgery. So I went into the delivery room saying I'm absolutely 
going to not have a C-section. But what ended up happening is that my daughter was born with her umbilical cord wrapped around her body like a crossbody bag. And her shoulder got stuck on the way out. And I was in labor for 30 hours. And and there are major risks associated with and she kept shooting back up into my uterus. Like when she would kind of come down, I was going to give birth. She'd shoot back up. So if I could go back in time and look at that time, I was so staunch in my preferences that I kind of wasn't listening when the doctors were suggesting a C-section because I really didn't want one. I ended up not having one, but I have a lot of guilt because sometimes I think if I had been so comfortable with my preferences that I could very openly listen to the alternatives, which would have been a C-section, that actually might have been a safer option for everybody. So I think those two stories are really different. Pause for a second. I'm really biased here because your daughter is my granddaughter. Let's just, for the record, say that everything turned out beautifully and she's healthy and beautiful. Thank God. Oh, yeah. Perfect. But I, I hear you. And, you know, I didn't know that you postponed maybe a recommended C-section. It all turned out okay, but I didn't realize that. So how do you decide when your preferences trump the doctor's recommendations? Do you have a good answer to that? That's what I've been marinating on and where I thought I was about to go sort of in that conversation. I Okay. So I think if you know you've given a good history, if you've really looked into the two options or three options or 25 options, depending on what you're looking at having done, that you feel comfortable to receive a recommendation, I think that that's a really good place to be. So I probably should have done more research on C-sections as an option and risks of things that could go wrong in childbirth. But because I knew that enough women had had you know, vaginal deliveries, I didn't know enough about the benefits of a C-section. I was only thinking about the risks. So I think being so informed that you're comfortable receiving receiving information that maybe you wouldn't have gone for in the first instance, as opposed to being caught off guard and just sort of saying, no, 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 that's not for me. So I have a recommendation that may be helpful to you and others that are listening which is that the tendency is to say, well, what's the risk of a, name the procedure, in this case, a C-section? That's a fine question to ask. The recommendation I have is to ask an additional question to yourself and of the doctor, which is to say, what's the risk of not doing a C-section? Because I bet if you had asked that question, your doctor would have responded with something like, well, she could have that cord wrapped around her and it could be devastating, you know, lifelong effects with disabilities, et cetera, because you can cut off blood flow, et cetera. And I wonder whether or not a tactic that people could take away from this conversation is to say, what are my preferences? What are the risks of doing this procedure that may be uncomfortable for me to think about having? What are the risks of not doing that procedure? And that at least begins to pull you back from your own bias. Oh, totally. And I think of things like an anxiety medication, right? What are the risks of me taking this is a very common question. What are the risks of me not taking this? And, you know, continuing with status quo, whether status quo means not taking a pill or not having a procedure. And I think every choice that you make 
even the choice to not take something is a choice. And so what are the impacts of my choices in either direction, in every direction, I think is huge. That's great. So people that are listening to this now know a lot about your contraception history. They know a lot about mine too. (laughs) That's all fine. (laughs) But there may be men listening. There may be people that are not at that stage of their life. And I think the takeaway, this wasn't a podcast about IUDs or contraception or pregnancy. It's bigger than that, right? It's about doing your research before you go into the doctor's office. It's about how to evaluate the risks of doing and not doing something. So I'm wondering if you had to wrap this up by telling a friend, any one of your friends, about how they might approach their care. Is there any recommendation that you would have for somebody about how to speak up for their health? I think, you know, they say knowledge is power. And I mean, you said you don't believe in Dr. Google. You go to, and then you listed Cleveland Clinic and WebMD, but just anything is better than nothing. And then those things are better than bad information. But also sometimes you might have a a friend that's a doctor and you might say, hey, what do you think? But I think too often people are about to take a step to gain knowledge and then they stop one step short. So reaching out to your friend to see what they think before your appointment, looking things up on the internet before your appointment, looking things up in general in order to make an appointment. I think just taking a look rather than being paralyzed or having half the information about what you want, but not looking into other options. I would just say to to get all the information you can, because I've been in a situation where I've had several friends that will say something's going on with them medically. And then of course I call you immediately and I ask you what you think. And then I call my friend back. And sometimes the friend is really receptive and will take that information and it will really inform what they ask their doctors. Sometimes I can tell the person on the receiving end of my, listen to what my mom said, will be like, I don't want to know. This is too much. And I think being open to more information is always helpful because I don't think, I, I don't think it really hurts you if you have more information. I think that's really great advice. And I want to thank you for sharing that really personal story. (laughs) I know that it was important to you and as your mom, I was so thrilled to hear how you advocated for your health at a moment when I was not there and you've learned to do that. And I'm sure that you'll pass that along to your daughter, but most importantly, thank you for passing it along to the listeners that are going to listen to this podcast. Thank you so much. I'm so proud of myself. When I got it taken out, I asked if they could put it on a gold chain for me and they thought I was joking and they got rid of it and put it in a sanitary waste facility. I wasn't kidding. If I could have dipped that IUD in gold and put it on a gold chain, I'd wear it around my neck. I love that story too. And I really appreciate (laughs) you letting me tell it. Thanks again for listening to this episode of Speak Up For Your Health. The key takeaway from Ariel's story is that advocacy starts with knowledge. So here's some tips. One, do your own research when you get medical care. Ask your doctor three to five good questions and make sure they get answered. Two, always, always consider the risk of any procedure or medication. But before making a decision, also consider the risk of not doing the procedure or taking the medication. And finally, 
If you notice something that may be a mistake, speak up. Trust me, the doctor will not get mad. They will really, really appreciate it. If you enjoyed this episode, I hope you leave a rating and review, recommend it to your friends and family, and post about it on social media. If you have your own story about finding your voice and advocating for yourself, share it with me. You can find me on Instagram and Facebook at the links that are in the show notes. Speak Up For Your Health is produced and edited by Jenny Lee Park and myself. Music is by Alex Tepper. Great cover art was created by Sean Sutton.